Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. It's honor this morning to have Russell Jackson with us, chef owner of Reverence in Harlem, New York City. Russell, thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, you know. All right. So let's get into this. We always like the origin story. We want to tell people kind of your journey through the industry. Always fascinated how we find our way into the industry and how we find ourselves in, you know, in New York, in Harlem, opening Reverence. But give us a little bit of that backstory. Um, well, uh, I've been cooking this earliest, the moment I started walking and, uh, uh, eventually, uh, in my, my college years, I, and you know, I, I'm like a lot of kids, uh, who grew up, uh, uh, with sort of on the periphery within the industry. I had family members that were within the industry in different aspects. I had a uncle who owned a, uh, supermarket, uh, in, in, uh, East Los Angeles. And, uh, uh I worked at taco places and pizza places and I was a delivery driver and at one point I worked at McDonald's which I I held the most burgers cooked in, in a single day uh, <laughs> yes even competitive <laughs> when you work at McDonald's, McDonald's uh, um, uh, down in Santa Monica uh, on the 4th of July uh, and and uh, sort of found my way into a professionally uh, uh, left college uh, to really turn pro uh, ended up working in a lot of top restaurants uh, all across uh, uh, Southern California. Uh, ultimately ended up opening my first restaurant uh, in 94 in uh, uh, on La Cienega, uh, just above the Beverly Center. Uh, and uh, what was that called? That was called Russell's. Yeah. And it had a bit of critical success. Yep. Uh, was rated one of the the number twenty two restaurant in the city at the time that year. Uh, and this was pre Zagat's, pre uh, 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 Michelin, and all the rest. Yep. And uh, 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 ultimately ended up closing that. Uh, went on the road and worked with a handful of different uh, rock and roll bands, uh, with the Counting Crows being one of them. Uh, uh, and then through that relationship, uh, ended up uh, uh, in San Francisco, uh, and that was in 99. And uh, uh, I worked for the Black Cat and got a James Beard nomination and, you know, sort of a bunch of hoopla about that restaurant. Left there and uh, uh, took some time off, worked for a couple of fortune. Well, that's not good. Blow it up. Hey, it's, real, it's real life, Russell. Actually, actually, that's a perfect, perfect. I want to hover right there a little bit because when you uh, made the transition into San Francisco and it really started blowing up for you, you kind of had an alter ego. And this is where I first found you. It was Dissident Chef. And you were one of the first chefs that absolutely went like bonkers on social media that I remember that was very underground and it very much felt like it wasn't this celebrity chef thing that was put on by the media, but it was like just you connecting directly to the people and telling your story. Tell people a little bit about that because I think it really well, matters in the way that we 
think about communicating on social media as as chefs? Well, and this is something we were discussing earlier. Part of uh, uh, my journey as an African-American chef has been challenging, like most other African-American chefs. And uh, I, you know, I mean, the story's long and, and, and very torrid. Uh, uh, that we're about to release, I'm about to release a statement, a very lengthy statement that explains some of that. But uh, one of the things that I had to do in coming up with the idea that it was time to build another restaurant, uh, you, you, you know, you have memory lapses and you realize, oh, this is a good idea again. Yep. <laughs> Let me burn a pile of money. Yep. <laughs> you want to make a small fortune, start with a large fortune, that whole, yep. <laughs> Nonprofits. Yep. So, um, uh, one of the things that uh, I realized that to protect myself and and uh, my ideas, but as well as uh, uh, gain a level of deeper acceptance within that community in San Francisco was to hide myself. So I created Subculture Dining, which is which is still my underground restaurant, uh, and uh, uh, took the moniker of Dissident Chef, and uh, uh, that protected me for quite a while. And we built a massive following. Uh, and raised for, you know, the idea was, was that we were going to do it for a short period of time and uh, raise the capital and find a, a space and everything else and be able to perform and do the work that we, we, I knew we were capable of doing without the distractions and also not getting arrested because it's, uh, you know, not so kosher. So how did you understand the medium of communication as as chefs you get so tunnel visioned into your four walls right and you broke through that you were also one of the first i ever saw doing pop-ups i had never heard that term really yeah. applied yeah. To, to food before but how did you understand the medium of communication taking it outside of the restaurant and the kitchen and going broad big i mean national international like people are engaging with you in this way and the anonymity i think created this like mystery like, yeah, I, I think people enjoy the mystique, but as much as anything, uh, uh, you know, we were, I've always believed in the relevance of, uh, and the power of hiding in plain sight. And uh, having been years before uh, an underground uh, a nightclub owner and uh, a bar owner uh, uh, and having had my run-ins with the authorities in those respects in Southern California, uh, I understood better how to how to hide in plain sight. Uh, uh, the and again, uh, uh, you know, Instagram didn't exist. Twitter did. Facebook kind of did. Yeah. Uh, uh, MySpace, you know. So, and living in San Francisco, you start to learn, and you're, you're on the forefront of all of what's happening technology wise. Yeah. Right. And. Uh, we did in the very beginning, we did a lot of grassroots hand to hand combat and and that, you know, and then it was like, OK, what are the efficiencies of trying to communicate to people and allow them to have connection connectivity to us uh, without having to expose ourselves or put me out on the street to do it. Uh, and as we started to utilize technology to achieve those goals, um, we were an early innovator in, in the space. And, you know, uh, the the pop ups were, again, sort of a spinoff of my of my my history my my growing up in southern california some of the some of my favorite restaurants in southern california and in paris were underground restaurants and that uh the, if you look at history uh underground restaurants were uh, uh the impetus for the modern day restaurant all the way back to roman times 
So, you know, the roadhouse, uh, uh, the, the private supper clubs uh, uh, that existed outside of the state. Uh, and uh, so just, again, I'm a, I have foreknowledge of, <laughs> I read a little bit of history. I, I thought, okay, I have all the technology, all the resources, all the manpower. And it means that if I can sit at my computer for a couple of hours a day and talk to people or be able to interact with them, and generate sales for myself and make connections with people without having to be stuck to a telephone or anything else, um, uh, then it's gonna be efficient, it's gonna work great for us. Uh, I'm now, as I stand, pretty anti-social <laughs> media uh, <laughs> in my current status because you know we jumped the shark way bad and now it's just a churning pile of white noise. Um, I think that the importance of being able to tell your story and relate the information is and and tell earnest stories is really really important, especially for small restaurateurs. Uh, my restaurant uh, Reverence, which is in Harlem now, um, is built around an experience which is taking you through a personal journey, my personal journey of Southern California, Northern California, uh, about the food, the influences uh, uh, from the different chefs, uh, the philosophies and ideas around food culture that I grew up with. Uh, and we relate those, we relate the dish to the story, to the music, to the, to the smells and flavors, and that creates an entire experience. And it's very, very personal. Uh, uh, and now with the way things are uh, and how we're dealing with a set of very, very difficult conversations that we're all going to have to have and continue to have for a while, uh, uh, some of those personal stories, uh, we're going to lean a little bit harder into my experiences uh, as an African-American chef that does not cook soul food. Yeah. Tell me, why was it important for you to open reverence in New York, being California is where you're from, where your roots are, where you made your bones, making the jump to New York, and then specifically Harlem. Take us through kind of the thought process there for you. Well, um, I was... Uh, I closed my restaurant in, in uh, uh, San Francisco in uh, 2013. And uh, it's, as anyone knows who's had to close a business, it's a, it's a gut-wrenching experience. And uh, literally the week that I closed the restaurant, Food Network called and said, come to New York, let's go to work. And uh, I said, I got nothing better to do, so sure, why not? And uh, uh, I ended up doing a stint with them for a while. Uh, part of my agency and network wanted me to be here on the East Coast more than I was in San Francisco. Gotcha. So for a year or so, maybe 18 months, I was uh, commuting back and forth. And it's not as much as it sounds, you know, glamorous, entertaining, but it sucks. It's a grind. Uh, it gets really old, super, super fast, especially when you start waking up in cities and not realizing where you're at, what mm -hmm. you're doing you know, what the weather's going to be like. Uh, uh, it's a harsh reality. And, you know, when you start spending more hour, man hours sitting inside of a tube flying across the country, you just, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's it's costly. It's just not worth, like, if you don't have to do it, don't do it. Uh, and uh, I got to a place in my life in California and the relationships that I was having that um, uh, moving here seemed appropriate. And honestly, I felt more comfortable in my skin being on the East Coast. Uh, my, my family's originally from the East Coast. Uh, I'm actually the last of my line to move from the West back East. 
Uh, so my ninety nine percent of my family lives on the East Coast at this point. Uh, okay. Once again, and uh, I, I met a lovely young girl, uh, uh, my wife uh, Laura, uh, who's Bulgarian, who lived in Harlem. I had a lot of friends that lived up here, and I spent. I ended up even though I was living in uh, Lower Manhattan, uh, I ended up spending an awful lot of time here, and I came to really find a comfort level and an appreciation for what Harlem is and what it stands for, where it's going to. And what I realized was uh, through, I, you know, I have, I'm very fortunate that I have a small brain trust of some really, really special friends. And uh, uh, Dominique Crenn is, is, is my best friend. And fortunately for me, uh, her and, uh, and, and my other best friend, Amy Moore, really kind of convinced me that, Building another restaurant in, in, a, in an area like Harlem, which is is on an underserved community, was a, an imperative and important thing for me to do because it's what I do, uh, and that I, you know, I I didn't have to uh, 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 do anything but what I do to potentially be successful. So uh, through a, a year long journey, once again finding a great location, which my restaurant is on the most historic uh, and significant block in, in, in Harlem, uh, uh, which is Strivers Row. Look it up. Uh, It's a pretty important block in, in all of Harlem. Uh, And if you've ever watched Luke Cage, they talk about it. They reference uh, Strivers Row quite frequently and film there as well. Uh, uh, I, uh, I ended up finding the a space on the key corner uh, of that that uh, uh, block, and uh, and a 150 year old historic landmark building, and got really really fortunate and wrote a lease and you know it took about a it took longer than it should have taken to get it built, uh, but we did it and we've been operating for about 10 11 10 months now, uh, and you know. <laughs> it's been a bit of a shit show from the start, but we're yeah. we're we're there. And and again, the mandate and the idea was was the opportunity for us to provide a a, a, a top quality amenity to uh, an area that didn't have uh, and doesn't have what we do. There there hasn't been a fine dining restaurant in Harlem, uh, let alone, uh, or I should say, there has not been a fine dining African-American-owned restaurant in all of all of Manhattan since 1988. The person that owned that last restaurant was Patrick Clark. So, uh, and that was on the, that was on the East side uh, for me to be in Harlem and doing a uh, uh, fine, fine dining California style service uh, is from my thought, it's rather impactful and it really is the the importance about like the common denominator i've been cooking for over 36 years the food's good right yeah, like, yeah, yeah. okay maybe i toss up a boner once in a while but for the most part the food is good the service is great because it's personable and, and attentive it's a 900 square foot space that's a, a counter service so uh it's it's very personalized uh, uh and very attentive uh, but the, the the bigger the bigger point about all of this is that this now exists in Harlem and that we're trying to help to uh, uh, bring healthy, high quality food and style to uh, 
uh, uh, to the upper boroughs. Um, and I hope that more people and more restaurateurs understand and realize that, hey, this is a viable neighborhood. This is a viable area. Why can't we build up places up there? And that uh, uh, it's not just all uh, fried chicken and, and, and rib joints. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, uh, there are restaurants. I have a 20 year plus restaurant down the block uh, that's owned by really a historic landmark himself uh, in Londell's. Uh, and nothing but respect for that guy because he's still in there doing his thing every single day. Uh, but we need more of what I do in that in, in Harlem uh, uh, to provide additional artistic flavor and and yeah. Yeah, to raise the bar for what what high quality food can can really be. And for, and you, for you, you did, did a a counter service. service. Talk, Talk about, about why that was important, and maybe also. How that's oh, that right now is that's a major need in the market. Well, the, the a couple thoughts went into the design of the restaurant. A, it was it's really built around efficiencies. Uh, the importance of making sure that we had a small footprint that was highly controllable by just a handful of people. My thought has always been: look, worst case scenario, if I got to go in with myself and a dishwasher, can I still feed the restaurant? Uh, and uh, 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 worst case scenario, if everybody goes down, can I pull it off? And uh, technically we can, it's not pretty. I don't look very happy at the end of it, but um, uh, uh, we have a staff of when we're fully complemented. We can't have more than six staff members in that restaurant and we can still crush 40 to 50 covers in a night. Uh, uh, it's a, we do a prefix, uh, fine dining, five course tasting menu, uh, that's prepaid. We were, all, we, we were one of the, uh, well, I mean, one of the only African-American restaurants and the only African-American restaurant in Harlem, uh, and in New York that was on the talk system. Uh, that's certainly changing because uh, uh, people are moving to their system now because they're seeing how incredibly wonderful uh, uh, as a business model and as a group that they really are. They've been uh, they've been a lifesaver and a business saver in in yeah. what we've been doing. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Nick Kakonis's company with Alinea, Grant Ackett's partner there. Uh, I was just emailing with him a couple of days ago and he's talking about trying to get 2000 restaurants back open right now. So they are busy, busy, but yeah, I can't even, I, I have a personal rep that, that, uh, it guy that I deal with and normally I can just call him or text him and say, Hey, can we tweak this or whatever? And he's like, dude, we got a schedule now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little busy. So yeah. thanks Brandon. So, <laughs> but, yeah, but no, they, they, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people have tried to take advantage of uh, the, the COVID situation yeah. uh, and now by extension are trying to take a, 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 a advantage of people in regards to uh, Black Lives Matter. And uh, uh, I can truly and honestly say that uh, talk and, the, and, that, and that organization has been a real advocate for us. Okay. Uh, they've stood staunchly behind us uh, and they've done all the all the right things, you know, uh, uh, and not just like, okay, we're going to waive fees or we're going to do, you know, but sure. it, morning, noon, night or day, what do you need? How can we help you? How can we build this better for you? What can we do? You know, you know, let us sit back and think how we can better help to serve you. Uh, so uh, it's, you know, it's a restaurant company by restaurant tours. 
and yeah. they're brilliant at what they do. So. And some of the best in the in the world for sure. So uh, you're talking about uh, the statement that you're making a little bit, touching on Black Lives Matter for you, your personal experience, Harlem, New York, the impact that's there is massive. So let's yeah. pull on that thread a little bit for you. It was very important, and I've seen this watching what you do and what you say, but more watching what you do You've been out there connecting with a lot of community organizations, been at the forefront of that throughout COVID, and then now this moment. So talk about just where you're thinking about your responsibility as yeah. an African-American chef, as a business owner, as a pillar in Harlem and at large in New York and the industry as a whole. So like break that down for us a little bit. Yeah. Where are you at and what's important for you in this moment? Well, the reality is, is that advocacy runs in, within my family. Uh, it, dates back very far but you know like my dad was uh, uh my dad's an anesthesiologist and uh, was uh, uh the state advocate in california for the uh, uh modern day uh, uh, in, uh insurance program insurance laws uh and fighting with the governor at the time which was jerry brown uh back in the the 70s uh, my dad used to be on television and stuff and it was always like dad's on television what the hell <laughs> Um, so it's so in your DNA then, huh? Yeah, it, it's really sort of ingrained in me. And, yeah. and not that I ever thought that it would be something that, you know, I never saw myself doing those types of things, but, uh, I'm a bit of a loud mouth and, and, um, uh, I feel that if you're trained and you're, you're educated, uh, and you have a valid opinion and you've done the work ahead of time to be valid in, in stating your opinion, that you should step up to the plate and say something. Uh, so I haven't pulled punches in, in, in different areas that I've been a bit of a loudmouth in, mm -hmm. uh, like in California regarding the, uh, the, the foie gras laws, uh, being sort of one of the poster boys, uh, to get my ass beaten about that. Yeah, I remember. Uh, uh but yeah, this state and time and place that we're, we're at in the world today is, you know, a lot of people have said, well, it's really different. And, uh, you know, as an African-American, you, you, you know, in the back of your head, nah, this is just another fucking day. We're yeah. dealing with the same crap that we've always dealt with our entire lives. Uh, and I can honestly say that I feel like this is slightly different. And my hope is, is that it is very different and that change will occur from this. Uh, change is actually a really cool thing I've learned in my life and, um, uh, and that we have the opportunity to make things better. Uh, I'm going to be releasing a statement in the next couple of couple of days, if not even tomorrow. Um, uh, how and where we're going to disseminate it, I'm not quite sure. I think eventually it'll end up on Medium and potentially on our webpage. Okay. Uh, but it's 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 a brief handful of small stories, just top line pieces of experiences that I've grown up with, and 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 things that I've had to deal with, not just as an African American growing up in California. Uh, uh, but uh, also as a, uh, an African-American chef. Uh, and there are, um, you know, and, and, and writing it and going through it, you know, it's like there are, there are things that I'm saying out loud that I've never said out loud before, written down before. Wow. And it's, it's, uh, it's a super uncomfortable place to be. Uh, it's very difficult to think about the fact that uh, what I considered normal is, uh, uh, and certainly at the time, uh, 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 being fired sight unseen or being fired uh, within first sight, uh, uh, being beaten, uh, burned, knocked, 
yelled at, screamed at, uh, berated, uh, told to stay in my lane, mm. uh, uh, you know, go back to, you know, all the, all the horrible adages, uh, the quantity of times that I've been pulled over uh, uh, doing sim- simple things like walking. <laughs> uh, and even here in New York, uh, 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 multiple times in the subways, I've been, I've been yanked aside. Uh, and fortunately for me, I'm a, you know, I like to make fools of people. So if you even look back into my Instagram, you'll see all the cops that have pulled me over and then realize who I am uh, uh, and taking photos with them and said, yeah, these two dicks. Uh, <laughs> because so, your yeah. selfie game is famous. You're famous. Like you were one of the first chefs to do the, the selfie and you're always like out there. I, I'm, I'm fascinated in that, but that is a whole different topic. But the selfie game is strong. And you yeah. use that both for good and then apparently to make people uh, yeah, look like fools. Yeah, you know, again, I, I think I think someone said a, a very close friend of mine said something to me the other day and said, "Hey, you know, um, this is not an African American problem. This is a white person's problem, and that it's time for white people or people not of color to stand up and to start to educate themselves and to have a better understanding of systemic racism." of passive racism, of how the world has been and has treated African-Americans. And it's a hard, it's a very difficult place for people to look and to to be accepting that they may have or have acted out in these ways, not even having an idea that they have, you know? And, And again, for myself, you get so calloused and so worn out from all of it. You, you just, you, you start to not accept it, but you, it just becomes a part of your normal everyday life and it shouldn't be. And I think we're finally at that, that, that crossroads where we're that more and more of it's, that type of behavior is going to start to get called out. Uh, I think that the necessity of inclusivity is important. I think that, you know, and, and these are all these systemic issues that we, we take all the way back to the fact that again, one of the things that I we were talking about earlier that I pointed out in, in my statement that, that we're going to release is, is that education has been destroyed. The aspect of history is not being taught. You know, uh, uh, the fact that I can say, you know, you mentioned a handful of names of chefs, restaurant people I've never heard of. And, and it's disappointing to me. It's right. horrifying to me. You know, but when I, when I can mention people like Patrick Clark, and, and, and people have no idea the impact that he made on American uh, on American cuisine, uh, that he is one of the four forerunners and that his name should be up there with uh, Jeremiah Tower and Alice Waters. And, you know, I mean, cornerstone individual uh, uh, that framed modern American cuisine today uh, uh, that that no one realizes who Rufus Estes is. Now, Rufus Estes was the first African-American cookbook writer. And that when you read that cookbook, it's not fried chicken and, and, and soul food. Right. It's French cuisine. Yeah. It's French cuisine. Utilizing the local indigenous products to the different parts of the country that he was, he was inhabiting. Whether he was in the South and had peanuts, or whether he was in, 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 in another state and had citrus or tomatoes or and the fact that no one knows you know it's like i learned when i was a child who george washington carver was 
I don't know how many people today, I don't know any kid that can tell me who the, who the hell George Carver, Carver is. And, but yet, every single day, they, <laughs> they eat something that George Carver helped to transition, you know, or who Augustus Jackson is. You know that the reason we have ice cream is because of Augustus Jackson, yeah. a black man. You know, I mean, the, the, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And all of these things have just been whitewashed or, you know, not the, the respect and the homage has not been given. And that and, and the, I'm just talking about food. I mean, we don't even want to go into categories like music. Well, let's give us some give us some last thoughts on that, because, you know, there are so many people, millions of people in our industry specifically. Let's talk to them. And on both sides of the equation, you mentioned this. This is a, a white problem and how we navigate that and, you know, what role we play within the industry. So many people of color in our bedrock, absolute bedrock and the immigrant story and the people of color are absolutely essential. This industry would not exist full stop without those people. But give us a little bit. What's your hope? How do we educate ourselves? How do we communicate to kind of get to the next phase of this issue? Because you did say it is different now. There may be an opportunity. Yeah. And and we're certainly going to be myself, Dominique, uh, 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 Jeremy Fox, some of my other friends in in the culinary industry, Yvonne Lamonet. We're all going to be taking efforts uh, uh, to make sure that this messaging and this, this, these ideas continue to go forward. And um, uh, I think that uh, for restaurateurs, um, I think that again, and I was, I've always believed that the, the personal stories are the most important. I think that advocacy and, 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 and uh, diversity within kitchens, uh, people of color, uh, uh, women are all important aspects to, to, have those voices and have those people in your kitchen uh, to, to uh, allow the level of education uh, uh, for African-American cooks and chefs. Uh, this is this is your moment. And this is the opportunity in time where you can go out and do the hard work and the heavy lifting. Like I, I'm the first person to say, give me the opportunity. Yes. I will do the hard work. And, and that's, that's what has to be done. Like there are no shortcuts to any of this. You know, you can't turn around and, and try to be Insta famous uh, uh, or Salt Bay, which is you know <laughs> that a whole other show, huh? <laughs> that 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 those people that are going to go in, dig deep, do the hard work, uh, uh, pay the hours on their feet like they're supposed to, keep their keep their mouth shut, their head down, yes, chef, and do the work and gain the education and ex- expose themselves to new styles and new techniques and new information and, and be loving and, and hospitable because in the beginning and in the end, the thing that we do is, is we're there to be of service. We're there to, to, to give of ourselves and, and be hospitality people. That's who I am. That's all I know how to do. You know, I can color it different ways. I can, I can I can put my opinions out there and and I've paid my dues in 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 the deep end to be va- have the validity to be able to stand up and voice my opinion but you got to pay the dues and you got to do the work 
and and again the opportunities there i mean we're going to be beating on an awful lot of uh, uh of uh restaurateurs to uh to diversify their kitchens a lot more i mean i spent years and years and years working in high level kitchens uh to be the only black face in in that kitchen uh and and it was it was an odd existence, uh, uh, but in the same respect, uh, uh, that's still a practice that's gone on today, and it needs to change. And the other side of it is, is that African Americans cook more than soul food. You know, uh, I am by trade uh, a, a classically trained French chef, uh, and it's again from French cuisine, sort of is the cornerstone to all others. Uh, uh, and there's an argument there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes for better or worse, I feel you. <laughs> but, um, you know, at my restaurant, we cook French, Italian, Japanese, Hispanic, uh, uh, Korean. Uh, uh, and those are the, those, that is California cuisine and, and the influences in the place that I, I take my work and my stories. Uh, uh, and I, I'm, I, I want to see more of us in those kitchens. I want to see more of us in those spaces and at the higher level. I think that, yeah. that you know, yeah. organizations like James Beard uh, and and uh, uh, some of these other restaurants, uh, as well as I think the media needs to stop pigeonholing us into this is, you know, it's like, I, I you know, again, no offense against the New York Times, but I think it's the, when they put out a story uh, that is built around the top, whatever it was, 15, 16 influential African-American chefs in the country, and that every single one of those chefs represented soul food, to me, it's a pretty racist statement. And they don't even, you know, and the, the sad part is they don't even realize it. They don't even think about it. You know, it's like, you know, I, I you know, and there are, there are I, I, the, the first African-American chef to win a James Beard uh, 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 award uh, is, or uh, I think multiple Michelin star, or yeah, multiple Michelin star is not a soul food chef. You know, I'm happy for Kwame. I'm happy that he's doing, you know, and got such great recognition and is is being looked at. But he's doing another evolved form of soul food, and that's again like no disrespect. I think that that's awesome, and I'm so happy that he got recognized. You just but, want to see more diversity in the expression yeah. that "quote unquote" you're allowed to have. I think is it's an important it's an important statement. And I think yeah, to your point because the reality is is that when you look at culinary history and you look at the kitchens, <laughs> you look at all the people that were cooking that food and the people that were expressing that food, they look more like me than they did you, and and is you know somehow that world got changed and turned upside down and you know and again you 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 look at the 60s and the 70s and the macho kitchens of the 80s and yeah. you know i mean i lived through all of it in california and 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 i can say you know i mean it was a racist hostile misogynistic uh a war zone mm. you know there, there weren't, you know, I mean, there was no love going into that work, <laughs> you know, it was, it was pretty brutal. Uh, and that's how, that's how I grew up in the kitchens, you know, but it's certainly not how I, I know to make good food today.
Yeah, Russell, I really appreciate this. I appreciate always that you will call it like you see it. And lots of people can call bullshit yet to have the leadership to then create a roadmap coming out of it. That's what we really need. And that's what I've always seen you do, which I think is important. You're not afraid to get dirty and you're also willing and able to put in the work to actually show the leadership coming out of it. That's what we absolutely need right now. And that's why I'm so grateful to have you on the show. And we'll continue to watch and share any of the messages. We'll make sure and get that statement, everybody, back uh, on here as a comment. Once you have that, we'll make sure we link that up so we can get that connected as well because it's important. And uh, I, I really appreciate you being on today. I appreciate it. And, you know, as like I said, the, 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 the most important thing is, is cook with love and be a good, good hospitality person every day. That's it. Purest it. form of hospitality is giving a shit about other people. That's it. Random acts of kindness on a daily basis. That's all. Uh, I love it. All right, Russell, be good. Thanks, Jameson. My pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.